Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank, get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Connie's report made me remember why. Why I am pulling for the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl coming up, you know, next week. Dur- during her report, they were talking about fans arriving in, in Arizona and stuff. And I think the most annoying um, thing that fans do in the NFL is that stupid horn that they blow in Minnesota, like every time they score a touchdown or get a first down. That that's really annoying. But the second most annoying thing is the chant the Philadelphia Eagles fans do. E-A-G-L-E-S, Eagles. Now, I I, I remember really tuning into this because in 2018, my my very, very close friend Evan is a huge fan of the Packers guard Jerry Kramer. And after a number of years, Jerry Kramer was admitted to the NFL Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. And so we, we went. So we, we went to, to see it. We'd been a couple of years earlier when Brett Favre got admitted to the Hall of Fame. And I, I will tell you this, if you ever get a chance to go, it's a fun weekend. Um, so we, we went to the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, and this was 2018. So it was the year after the Eagles had won the Super Bowl. So they were the world champion Eagles. And that year, two Eagle players were going into the, the Hall of Fame. Um, safety Brian Dawkins and then wide receiver Terrell Owens, who also played for other teams, but he went in as an Eagle. So there's all these Philadelphia Eagle fans that are at Canton, Ohio. I have never collectively, now maybe individually, maybe individually you will find, it's kind of like the Chicago Cubs fans, individually you might find a nice Chicago Cubs fan, but collectively they're jerks. Eagles fans individually might be very, very nice, collectively they are jerks so they were coming off the, this world championship season so they were very very full of themselves okay that that's fine but what they would do is during the, the hall of fame induction ceremony this is a big deal for people and so you have like all the inductees and they, they bring them on and they give speeches right They're, i mean they, they give their speech this is their moment in the sun where you've got all these eagles fans in the crowd who started doing that chant, E-A-G-L-E-S, Eagles, in the middle of the speeches that all these other people were giving. You know, and it was just, um, you know, Ray Lewis and Randy Moss, and I'm not a lover of Randy Moss or anything, Brian Erlacher, you know, who played for the Chicago Bears. But these were guys, this was their moment. They're going into the Hall of Fame, and you had a bunch of leather-lunged jerk Eagle fans who would do that E-A-G-L-E-S chant, and I thought, man, just collect. You just wanted to say, just, just shut up. You know, I mean, when when your guys are going in, you know, you when know, it's Brian Dawkins or it's Terrell Owens. Oh, okay, that's that's fine. But they were doing it just to be obnoxious. And you know what? They succeeded. And from that moment on, it was like, okay, you know, if there's a team now, there might be some teams I dislike more than the Eagles. But if you're asking me who I'm rooting for in the Super Bowl, I'm all over Kansas City. E-A-G-L-E-S. Give me a break. Um, Did you see the story? Aaron Rodgers. And this is, for those of you who want to hate Aaron Rodgers, this might be more ammunition for it. Um, Last, yesterday, they they wrapped up the Pebble Beach Pro-Am Golf Tournament. And, And Pebble Beach is sort of, for those of you who do not follow golf, 
Pebble Beach is kind of unique. Most tournaments don't have, I mean, they might have a pro where the pros play with the amateurs, but it's typically not as part of the tournament. You know, maybe it's, if the golf tournament is Thursday through Sunday, the the Pro-Am event will be like on Wednesday. Pebble Beach is different. They have a bunch of of amateurs, um, typically CEOs from big companies and media stars and athletes who get invited to play in this tournament. And what they're doing, they're paired with a playing partner and they, they have a pro and they have a competition for like the first three rounds for, for three rounds of, of the tournament. Well, anyhow, Aaron Rodgers ended up, he and his partner ended up winning. His pro partner ended up winning, um, had the lowest score. And interestingly enough, and this almost never happens, his pro uh, didn't didn't like win the tournament. I'm not even sure his pro made the cut um, otherwise. So he wasn't doing that well. So what happened is Aaron Rodgers, and if you follow golf, what golfers all are assigned handicaps. And what that means is you, you post scores from your rounds of golf and you, they look at your last 20 scores and they take the lowest eight scores. And that is your handicap. Now it's all, so then the idea being you can go to like any golf course in the world. And if you want to play a match with somebody, you can say, okay, I'm a 17 handicap. You're a 14 handicap. That means I get three shots, you know, so you can play competitively and you will get three shots over the course of 18 holes. Now they adjust it a little bit for how hard the course is and um, how long, which tees you're playing from. Obviously, if you're playing from the front tees and the course is only 6,000 yards long, that's easier than the if you're playing from the back tees and it's 7,000 yards long. But you, you get a handicap. And there is a thing in golf called sandbagging. Sandbaggers are people who are better golfers than their handicap reflects. Why would you want a higher handicap? Well, because if you're playing in a match or a tournament or something, you, you want to get more strokes. So maybe you typically, I don't know, have a handicap of five. But if you can somehow, I don't know, manipulate the system to get your handicap to 10, you're going to have an advantage because you're going to have more strokes than you're normally entitled to. Aaron Rodgers, who won this tournament, he, he they, they reported that he had a 10 handicap. Okay, I've got a 17 handicap. There is no way in God's green earth that Aaron Rodgers, um, Aaron Rodgers is a 10 handicap at Pebble Beach. He's, he's just not. Um, at his home country club in, in Green Bay, he's a three. So Pebble Beach, admittedly, may, might be a bit harder than his home golf course in Green Bay, but he's not a 10 handicap. But yet, you know, he got 10 shot. He got to be a 10 handicap, so he got all this credit and all. don't know who assigns this or what they had to promise him to get him there, but Aaron Rodgers, a 10 handicap, um, our, our our, our morning sports guy, Dominic uh, Catronio, he's got a piece up on our website. It's You can check it out at uh, WTMJ.com. If you're not familiar with how golf handicaps work, let me give you a quick breakdown. Let's say you post 20 rounds. Um, your handicap is basically an average of your eight best rounds. Handicaps level the playing field for someone with more skill to face someone with less skill. And depending on the format being played, it can be a hot point of contention at certain clubs. Um, the term sandbagging hails from a player competing with a higher handicap than they actually are, meaning they are receiving more help than they need. 
Aaron Rodgers has been accused of this. Then he goes on to say, my dude, you are not a 10. <laughs> Absolutely. He's he's not. So put another one of those little asterisks when you see, okay, Aaron Rodgers won the uh, Pebble Beach Pro-Am. He said, oh, this is something I've always tried to do. Well, oh, okay. It's easy when you're getting more shots than you should probably be entitled to. When we come back. They finally shot it down. I have two words. I'll share them with you and we'll discuss. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. All right. So Saturday afternoon, shortly after 1 o'clock, authorities finally, finally, finally shot down the China Chinese surveillance balloon which had entered U.S. airspace, what, about a week and a half ago, and had flown, I don't know, over nuclear facilities in Montana, and then had crossed diagonally across the country slowly, and finally it got about six miles off the uh, coast of South Carolina, and finally, 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 the, the Pentagon decided at that point in time they were going to shoot it down. They shot it down, and now Navy divers are trying to recover what was was in this. I have two words to describe this, and those two words are about time. And I'm sorry, I'm not buying the Biden's explanation for why they waited so long. Now, we, we talked about this on Friday's program, and I got texts from people saying, oh, this is just this is just partisanship. There's, there, there's, there's no reason to antagonize China by, by shooting it down. Well, okay, now we've shot it down. Now the narrative has changed. And my question is, why would we wait so long? For example, is it, for example, did we not pick up this balloon when it first crossed into U.S. airspace over Alaska? Do you seriously mean to tell me that there was no Alaska? We were there last summer. Wonderful state. But there is wide expanses where there's nobody around. Do you mean to tell me that we couldn't have shot it down in Alaska, over Alaska? Do you mean to tell me that over Montana, which is not populated at all, we couldn't have found some place to force that balloon down without risking, I don't know, uh, life and limb. Do you really mean to tell me that we had to let a, a spy balloon, if that's what it was, travel all across the country before we were willing to take it or able to take it down? And if that's the case, what, what does that say about our air defense system if we're afraid to shoot something down because, well, you know, there, there might be people underneath it? Now, I understand you don't want to put people at risk, but does that mean that we now have to allow a spy balloon to float diagonally all across the country because we're afraid that there might be some damage if you take it down? And, and by the way, by making the decision to do it where they did, they make recovery efforts to try to find out what exactly was in the balloon. They make it a lot more difficult. Okay, our number is 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, I, I'm glad they took it down. I, I think there's lots of questions re which remain, which are like, what is China doing and why is China is trying to be provocative? And, you know, but I think the bigger question is, why did we wait so long? And can it really be that if you put a balloon up in our airspace or you put some other sort of spy thing in our airspace, we have to let it travel the entire course of the country 
potentially accumulating data before we make the decision to shoot it down. Now, clearly, the fact that they did shoot it down shows that there was some degree of concern. My question is, did it have to get this far? 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line we discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, I'm hearing from some Biden apologists who's saying, well, 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 what's what's the big deal with this? Well, obviously, they thought it was a big deal because they ended up shooting down the balloon, right? My question is, do you mean to tell me that whenever you have this happen, if you've made the decision that the balloon has to be shot down, we have to let it travel the entire diagonal length of the country before we do it? You mean to tell me that once they picked this up entering Alaskan airspace, there wasn't some place that you could have taken this down before it got to the continental U.S.? Montana is a big state. Do you seriously mean to tell me that there wasn't some area where we could have figured out, okay, this is where it is. There's no population essentially here. We're going to take it down. And does that mean now that every time somebody violates our airspace, we're going to have to just let that go? That cannot be, can it? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Mike. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hi. uh, Good afternoon, Jeff. I agree with you uh, 100%. They could have uh, shot it down over Alaska or Montana. Geez, in Montana, they have a McDonald's 400, every 400 miles. There's got to be a place <laughs> someplace over there. Why would you wait until it takes a whole across the whole country, probably sending photos and data back to China as it's flying over, and then shoot it down? It's like uh, a scammer gets into your bank account, and you wait till he runs it all down, and then you close the account. Yeah, Mike, Mike, thanks for the call. I appreciate you joining. Well, I guess that that's my point. And see, over the weekend, I was getting static from people who say I was too hard on Joe Biden. Obviously, you know, we don't want to risk, you know, precipitating stuff with China. Just let the whole thing go. Well, that's not how they felt. They shot it down. They obviously felt the thing needed to be taken down. My question is, and again, moving, this is the, this is the issue moving forward. Is this what we're going to, is this the, going to be the new normal? Okay, fly stuff, these surveillance balloons. And I, Mike, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not sure we're ever going to necessarily know because when they made the decision to shoot it down over the Atlantic, they have made the recovery effort of whatever was in that balloon, they've made it more difficult because now it's in the water. You've got to get the divers out there and try to get that. But, but yeah, it was presumably, I think it's a fair assumption that it was transmitting data all the way over. So if you're going to make the decision to shoot it down, why why not shoot it down when it enters U.S. airspace over Alaska? Uh, why? That's the question, I think, that needs to be answered. Also, including why... Um, you know why this uh, why this would have been um, allowed to go on so far, and I understand there's apologists for for Biden, but if they were going to shoot it down, it seems to me they should have shot it down a long time ago. Um, and then a couple people are saying, well, there were balloons that crossed uh, United States airspace during Trump's presidency. No, well, there there might have been balloons there, but apparently that was not made known. To the Trump administration, I think they're just discovering this now. Steve in Bayview. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Yes, hello. I think it was very embarrassing that the uh, United States government, and really scary also, that they would allow this balloon to be flying over the United States from China. And I think it was also a big mistake 
to blow it down because they could have easily just towed that balloon in and brought it to the ground in one piece. Yeah, no, th- thanks for the call, Steve. I appreciate it. Well, that, that's, I, I guess that's the other thing. And I, I don't claim to be an expert in, in military tactics and warfare and stuff, but, but, but it, when, when you just kind of think about this objectively, it's it's almost comical to me that we're being told, oh, there, there's nothing that there's nothing that you can do. There's no way we can force something to land. And and the Wall Street Journal has a real interesting piece. I mean, what what if a, a hostile power decided that instead of being in a surveillance balloon, what we're going to do is we're going to float a, a balloon with some sort of, of bomb that's capable of, well, causing mass destruction or, or knocking out our power grid or whatever. We're, we're going to just allow that to happen. I mean, the, the bottom line, that's what I think Biden needs to explain, is that once we found out that this entered air, U.S. airspace, why it wasn't taken down immediately. And I, I just I haven't heard a good explanation for that. And it's scary, I think, moving forward. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So, very glad to have you with us. All right, here, here is the story, and I, I want your reaction to it. February is Black History Month, and most schools devote part of their curriculum to, again, teaching aspects of, of black history, which I think is it, it, it's wonderful. I, there's, there's no question about it. We can, you know, I understand that there's arguments that go on about, you know, woke instruction and things like that. But, I, I mean, I, I, think it is, I think it is certainly good to take, you know, a month and, and say, okay, look, let's let's talk about that experience and let's look back at the history, etc. All right, so here's here is the story and I want your reaction to it. As a general rule, I would argue that you know, school lunches, uh, if you want kids to eat the school lunches, the the thing you need to do is you need to make the school lunches appealing. You need to give the kids stuff that they want. Part of the reason I think you see so much waste in school lunches at all is that you know, we, we think we're doing something good by saying, okay, we're going to we're going to give kids broccoli with every meal. They're going to have to have carrots or whatever. And so you put it on the plate, and then 50% of the kids, 60% of the kids toss it out because they don't want to eat it, or the food is otherwise unappealing. So we, we virtue signal by saying, oh, we're, we're giving these school lunches, and this is all wonderful, but if they're not tasty um, or they're not stuff that the kids want to eat, and they end up in the trash, you haven't accomplished anything. So here is the story. A New York middle school has fallen, come under the crosshairs for serving a meal on the first day of Black History Month that was deemed to be culturally insensitive. Okay, here's the story. Administrators at Nyack Middle School say the hot lunch menu was changed by their vendor without their knowledge on February 1st, the first day of Black History Month. So what did they, what did the vendor do? Um, They served chicken and waffles with a watermelon dessert. So what happens is apparently uh, the vendor says, okay, well, this is the deal. Um, We... We were putting this together, and this is what ended up happening. And we thought chicken with waffles, and we thought that this watermelon dessert, we thought it would be tasty. We thought it would be appealing to the kids. So we, we served this. 
And apparently the, the food was popular because who doesn't like chicken and waffles, right? I mean, who doesn't like that? That's great. But a number of parents apparently got very, very upset, and they complained. They said that this is culturally insensitive uh, to serve chicken with waffles on the first day of Black History Month. The school, this is how the school describes it, we are extremely disappointed by this regrettable situation, and we apologize to the entire Nyack community for the cultural insensitivity displayed by our food service provider. We're disappointed that Aramark, that's the food service provider, would serve items that differed from the published monthly menu, um, especially items that reinforce negative stereotypes concerning the African-American community. After this this quote-unquote scandal broke out, the, the food service provider said, our menu was not intended as a cultural meal. However, we acknowledge that the timing was inappropriate and our team should have been more thoughtful in the service. This was a mistake and does not represent the values of our company, and we are committed to doing better in the future. Okay, our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. So long story short, the, the, the provider of, of the lunches, for whatever reasons, had nothing to do with Black History Month or whatever, thought, hey, you know, let's chicken and waffles. This is going to be this is going to be a good meal. Let's put this on the menu. And so they put it on the menu. And uh, from all I can tell, it, it was a hit. You know, the kids kids love chicken and waffles. Who doesn't love chicken and waffles? I mean, I, I, I never thought of chicken and waffles necessarily as being something that was exclusively designed to whether it's Hispanic or black or white or, or whatever, because. There are many times in my life that I have ordered chicken and, and chicken and waffles. Why? Because it's a tasty sort of thing. But you have some of the parents that got bent out of shape saying, how dare you serve this, you know, on the first day of February? Don't you know that this is Black History Month? And then, of course, the school jumps on board. And I guess my question is, what what does this mean moving forward? Can you not? I, I don't know. For Black History Month, does that now mean that for the 28 days of February, 28 days this year in February, right? For the 28 days of February, you, you cannot serve any sort of food that might be culturally sensitive. It's culturally associated with, for example, the black community. Th- does that mean, I don't know, you, you can't have barbecue? I, I You know, does, does that mean, uh, again, you, you can't serve collard greens? I, I ask these sort of questions because you're going to be accused of being culturally insensitive. Isn't the real point that, okay, there's really no evidence that this was intended as a cultural statement. It was just, hey, we thought this was going to be good food. 855-616-1620. Should everybody have been as upset about this as they were? Everybody's apologizing. Everybody's on tiptoes. My response is, hey, if the kids liked it, Maybe it's the adults that have a problem. What do you think? 855-616-1620. We discuss in just a moment. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So, so all these parents are in uproar because on the first day of Black History Month, the provider of these school lunches serves chicken and, and waffles. 
okay. And, oh, this is terrible. Don't you know that's culturally insensitive? And the school apologizes, and the, the meal provider has to apologize. They say, we, we were just trying to present something. We, we, we weren't thinking of any sort of cultural you know, appropriation or anything. There wasn't a statement. We were just trying to serve food that the kids we, we thought would like. And my guess is the kids all did like it. It was the adults that have this problem. And my question is, seriously, if this is it, does that mean for the entire month of February, we, we cannot serve... I, and some people are texting me saying that they think of like chicken and waffles more southern food than black food. I don't know, but does that mean that you cannot serve, you know, food that might be associated with black cuisine, for example, capital B and black cuisine? We we can't serve that during the month of February because it's going to be culturally insensitive. Well, give me a break. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's start with Chris in Cedarburg. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. You know what? It's so sad because if you watch diners, drive-ins, and dives, they go around and they look at all these different food creations, including the waffles and uh, the chicken and, you know, all that. And it's like, you know, it, it's all it's all wonderful that we give the kids an opportunity yeah. to try something a little a little more high up or, you know, better. But, you know, I would never think of a racist issue because I order a waffle in a chicken breast. I mean, do you think of that when you go to a KFC or Popeye's? I just go and get a breast of chicken and that's it. I don't think I, I, of racism. Well, right. And I don't think. And thanks a lot for the call, Chris. I appreciate. It. I don't think the the kids thought of of that either. Um, I mean, I guess. And I guess I wonder where 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 do you draw the line? Does this mean all during February, for example, that it, you you can't serve like rib sandwiches and collard greens and something like that be, because somebody's going to take this as cultural and appropriate uh, appropriation, and somebody's going to think that I, I I don't know what that you're trying to be racist or whatever. There. The, and, and I think the ultimate irony of this is that it, it wasn't even like, here, let's celebrate, you know, Black Heritage Month by, you know, we're, we're going to have a, a menu that is, you know, geared to traditional Southern food, black food, whatever you want to say about that. It, it was just like, hey, you know, we we were looking at ways to spruce this up. So, you know, here here's what we did. And some people are making a big deal saying, well, they should have notified the families. So, yeah. So let's say they came out with their menu to be they, they followed the same menu they came out with. They announced the menu what a month in advance. And let's say that on February 1st, it, it said, OK, it's going to be chicken and waffles. Would, would that would, would people be legitimately able to be offended by by that? I mean, seriously, 855-616-1620. Um, uh, Jeff, uh, let's see. Um, with. With regard to the hot lunch program, um, I just think, you know, people should be happy that they're ending up getting a, a hot lunch. number of people are saying, does that mean that you can't have on, on Cinco de Mayo if you have, you know, a, a traditional sort of Mexican fare? Does that mean it's culturally insensitive? Um, Jeff, I find no problem with this. I think it's just people trying to make a molehill out of nothing. Should key, KFC shut down during Black History Month? Jeff, I think the constant need to apologize is, is ridiculous. It seems disingenuous after the fact anyways. Well, well again, and the the whole circumstance is that 
Nobody is suggesting that they did this out to to sort of make a statement at all. It's just that they put this on the menu. But I'm seriously thinking of all the different issues that we have with regard to race relations in this country and all the different things that, that maybe we should be focusing on on, you know, during Black History Month, that the thing that some people are going to be worked up over is the fact that you're, you're serving, you know, chicken and waffles, a meal that I'm sure is probably better than 95 percent of the meals that they put on that school lunch program. Um, Jeff, I, I'm 62. doesn't matter what race I am. I love both waffles and chicken. Since when is that meal considered ethnically exclusive? Solve a problem. Do not create one. Uh, Jeff, the perpetually offended strike again. So you cannot serve, you know, ribs, waffles, chicken, etc. I mean, what what do they serve um, during February? Jeff, I don't know what to say. Um, at least it wasn't German History Month because bratwurst, sauerkraut, and Stein of beer would have really caused an, an outrage. I, again, I this is it's supposed to be a celebration of uh, of. Well, Black History Month is supposed to be, you know, informing and a celebration of the culture, but that's not even what this was intended to be. So does that mean, again, that you can't serve this any time during the month? Does that mean that you have to, all right, let's look through the entire menu and we're not going to serve anything that might be considered to be, I don't know, black a black meal because somebody somewhere is going to get offended. 855-616-1620. John on the north side. John, you're on WTMJ. John. Hello, this is John and from Elkhorn. Yeah, hi, John. Go ahead. Oh, hi. <laughs> I was just listening oh, to John. this, and I was wondering, okay. who is who, who is complaining? Uh, is it uh, a bunch of, you know, if this is Black History Month, are the black people complaining about this, or are the white people? It seems like all these people that are offended aren't even of any nationality or any uh, culture or any kind of uh, race are the ones that are complaining. A lot of times, you know, how many times uh, the um, schools are changing the names of an Indian name for their team, but the Indians were not, uh, or the uh, uh, indigenous people, I guess you got to say, <laughs> um, they're, yeah. they're not the ones that are complaining. Yeah, no, thanks for calling, John. I, no, well, and again, I, I don't know the, the stories I'm looking at. I, I can't give you the, you know, ethnic or racial make, makeup of the people who are complaining. The, the conversation that school is saying, and it's an apology, is, you know, we're, we're concerned that um, this reflects systematic biases and negative stereotypes concerning the African-American community. Negative stereotypes concerning the African American community. I, I swear, I, in in times that I I I don't eat waffles anymore because of the maple syrup and stuff like that. I'm trying to, but but in, in times when I have ordered like chicken and waffles and stuff, it has never occurred to me, never ever occurred to me that I was trying to make a a, a statement or I was condoning or I was anticipating in, into negative stereotypes. It's just. Chicken and waffles is is good, and it's never occurred to me that I was playing into a systematic bias when I, I ordered chicken and waffles. It's just like it's good, and my guess is the vast majority, if not all of the kids who were eating chicken and waffles that day, never occurred to them that they were contributing to negative stereotypes or systematic biases. And if it's look, if you want to fault the food provider, I guess 
Maybe you can fault the food provider for changing up a menu item without giving notice to the school district. But I'm sure they do it all the time, and it just never occurred to anybody that, hey, it's February 1st, so now we can't serve chicken and waffles. We could serve it on January 31st. We could serve it on March 1st, but you can't serve it during February. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Well, after that last topic, I, I don't know if I if I should confess this, but I, I, at the risk of being culturally insensitive, I like Chick Fil A. I mean, I don't I don't eat much fast food anymore, but I, I think you know Chick Fil A does a, a really great job with their chicken sandwiches, and it doesn't matter whether it's February, which is Black History Month, or whether it's September. If I'm in the mood for a a good you know, chicken sandwich, fast food, I, I think Chick-fil-A does a, a great job. I am obviously not alone because if you've ever driven through past the, the drive throughs that they have, it, it's always packed. You know, there's the Chick-fil-A that's out in Brookfield on Capitol Drive. You drive through that, and, and it seems like there's always 30 or 40 cars in the in the drive through lane. Well, all right, there's a new Chick-fil-A in Glendale. And I don't, it's right on, it's on Port Washington Road, just north of Hampton, south of, uh, uh, south of Silver Spring. And I, I guess maybe we shouldn't be surprised, but road rage at the Chick-fil-A. If you follow me on Twitter, I've got a link to this. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. Road rage at the Chick-fil-A ended up with three people arrested Friday afternoon. Only in Milwaukee can I guess you get three people who get arrested at the Chick-fil-A in a road rage incident. Police said a minor incident, quote-unquote, in the drive through led to the road rage argument. A 29-year-old Milwaukee man apparently pulled out a gun and started brandishing it. Um, now, the guy is a convicted felon, so you've got a felon driving around with a gun who pulls his piece on somebody else. A 28-year-old woman is being charged with disorderly conduct and hit and run of an occupied vehicle. So I, I don't know exactly what happens here between the cars in the line. My guess is somebody tries to cut somebody else off, smacks into a car. So you've got a guy who's a felon in line at the Chick-fil-A. That makes you all feel comfortable, right? He pulls out the gun, apparently points it. 28-year woman charged with disorderly conduct and hit and run of an occupied vehicle. So she takes off. And then, just for good measure, there's a third person, a 50-year-old Milwaukee woman charged with possession of marijuana. So you've got one lady with a bag of dope worth dope. You've got another lady who's involved in a hit and run, and you've got a felon in possession of a gun who's waving the gun around. And all you wanted to do was get your chicken sandwich. Go figure. All right. When we come back here for the top of the hour news, some tough love to parents of millennials. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have you with us. Hey, big story from the world of sports. My Marquette Warriors, Marquette Golden Eagles, they're back in the top ten. The new Associated Press college basketball ratings are out. Marquette uh, 19 and 5, 11 and 2 in the Big East. Couple big wins last week. Um, they're they're number ten, number ten in the country, and. 
I, I'd be interested to see. It's been a long time since Marquette has, has been ranked in the top ten of the country, and it's. I think it's just a tribute to the new coach, Shaka Smart, and the recruiting and the teams that are playing. It's just. It's a. It's a fun game. They had a good game against Butler before that. Did a game. Good game against what was it Villanova. So, um, you know, they've got two road games this week: Connecticut and Georgetown. So, you know, playing. Connecticut, um, which is a, a very, very good team playing them at Connecticut. That's going to be a, you know, a very tough game. So, uh, you know, who knows where this team's going to end up, but I'll tell you, it's, they're, they're a fun basketball team to watch. The flip side is UW's been struggling, and I don't think anybody necessarily anticipated, you know, the problems they were having. Interestingly enough, if you look at UW, their biggest quality win was probably beating Marquette earlier in the season. So uh, between the Bucks and Marquette and how well UWM is doing, it's uh, it's good, good, good season for local basketball teams. All right. I, I want you to think of, of a number. We're not going to open up the phone lines, but I want you to think of a number. Millennials, and generally speaking, you are a millennial if you were born between 1981 and 1996, so approximately, and, and it varies a little bit, but so we're talking about approximately people who are between the ages of 27 and 42. That, that's, that's generally speaking who we consider to be millennials. So it's, it's, it's not, you know, baby boomers, it's not the Gen Xers, it's, but you're not, you're not a kid anymore. You know, 27, I think most of us would say, by the time you're 27, you're, you're an adult. And certainly, by the time you're, you're 42, that range, you figure, okay, you know, it, it's time for people to be out on their own. So Forbes magazine has a new poll out, and it's consistent with, you know, other polls of this sort. The, the question that Forbes asks is essentially, of, of millennials, what percentage of millennials depend on their parents for some form of support. And the question is, do you rely on your parents to pay some or all of your bills? Because now keep in mind, a lot of times with the parents, so if you're if you're 27 to, you know, 42, your parents, let's say, you know, they're 25 years older than you, maybe. I mean, I understand it, it can vary, but let's say that means your your parents are going to be in their 50s and their 60s. So they're at the point where they're trying to um, you know save up for retirement and stuff. So the question was, what percentage of millennials rely on their parents for at least some form of support every month? Now, now think about you know think about a number. You know what what would you think? 27 to 42, maybe. Ten percent. Now, if you said ten percent, that would be low. Maybe, maybe twenty percent. Well, if you said twenty percent, that would be low. If you said thirty percent, that would be low. I'll stop the game. Overall, sixty-four percent of millennials said they were still receiving financial support from their parents. And 35% indicated that they rely on their parents. 35% rely on their parents to pay some or all 
of their monthly bills. 35% of people, and again, it, it's it's a survey, so you can adjust downward a little bit if you want, you can adjust upward a little bit if you want, but 35% of millennials say they rely on their parents to pay at least some of their monthly bills, and 64% say that they rely on their parents for some form of financial support. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, I look, I, I understand, and I, I admit it, I, I'm a baby boomer, so I, I understand that maybe there's going to be that situation where you would go to your parents and say, Mom or Dad, I, I need I need help making a down payment on a house or, or something like that. You know, and depending on your parents' wherewithal, we didn't do this, but your parents' wherewithal, you know, maybe they, they loan you a little bit of money to help you with the down payment or something like that. Or I understand that there might be that situation where, geez, so we've just lost our job and, you know, we need some money to kind of tie us over and can you can you float us a loan of a little bit. So I understand there's always emergency situations that happen. But, but these numbers don't suggest to me that these are emergency situations. These numbers suggest that this is kind of the normal that is out there with at least a good percentage of people 27 to 42 expecting mom and dad to pay their, their monthly phone bills or their monthly car payments or things like that. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, first of all, do you believe these numbers and I guess secondly, from the perspective of of the parents, at some point in time, do you just say to your kids, I, "I'm sorry that, that you're an adult, that the gravy train, the gravy train has stopped here, and you know we've got to be concerned about our retirement." And by the time you hit age thirty-five or forty, you know you, you got to be taken care of yourself. Would that be a reasonable position for parents to take? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. In the same survey, 34% of millennials are living with their parents. 34%. 27 to 42. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. If you're just tuning in, there, there's there's multiple studies out, but the one that came out from Forbes magazine last week that got my attention is they survey several thousand millennials, and this is essentially people ages twenty seven to forty two, and, and the numbers are are just are just staggering to me. You've got 64%, 64% who say they depend on their parents for some degree of financial support, 35% who say their parents regularly pay some of their monthly bills. And I'm, I'm like, really? I mean, at the age of 35, if your parents are nearing retirement at 55 or stuff, and I, I understand, you know, maybe your parents are multimillionaires or things like that, but that's not the case with most people. By the time you hit 35 or so, shouldn't you be, I don't know, expecting to, you know, figure out your own way in life and not depend on your parents? 855-616-1620. Kevin in Green Bay. Kevin, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Thanks Kevin. For having me. Sure. Well, um, I, I guess where I was uh, coming from is this. At 18, I was asked by my mom, who was a single mother at the time, divorced, 
hey, can you start helping me pay rent? Um, and from that point forward, there was no expectation of me getting anything from her, but instead I was asked to support her. Sure. So I'm, I'm a little bit confused to where these, <laughs> these millennials are coming from that they think their parents are going to help them out because that wasn't my story. Well, and it's not, as I was saying earlier, um, Kevin, it's not just helping them out. I mean, I, I understand, hey, I, I've had a, I, I've had a setback and we need a, we, we need a new furnace and can you, can you loan me some money for, for three months or, you know, can you help me with the down payment on a house or something like that? I, I, I understand that, but these are just like the regular bills. These are the, hey, every month, hey, mom and dad, can you pick up the tab for the electric bill or the utilities or whatever? I, I can't imagine asking my parents that. And the, the, the truth is, I mean, by the time I was in my 30s and stuff, I was probably, well, I wouldn't have asked my parents for, for money. They needed it more than I did, I think. Yeah, was this guilt-based parenting? Is this like a, a society of you know parents who are feeling like they've done something wrong and they have to help their children? Interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm confused a little bit. I'm not sure. It, no, thank, yeah, you no, thanks for the call. It, interesting. Yeah. No, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. No, I, I, and, and you just kind of wonder what that expectation is because... At some point in time, and, and again, I understand there are emergency situations, but that's, you know, when you're talking over 60% who are, that, that's that's not emergency situations. That's just kind of settling into that lifestyle. At, at some point, you wonder, are the parents doing the kids a favor if the kids are not living within their means by simply saying, hey, we're, we're at this point where, you know, you're you're 33 years old or you're 35 years old or you're 40 years old. You know, it, it's time to stop expecting that mom and dad are going to be writing the monthly check. Jeff, that's crazy. I have three kids ages 20, 22 and 24. They're still on my health insurance because they're students. Yeah, I get that. But they are already all on their own in college on academic scholarships. which certainly helps paying their own bills and living on their own. There is no indication that they will ever need to um, move home. Jeff, I read an article recently that said 67% of adult Americans could not come up with $500 if they needed it in an emergency. I would think that goes a long way to support what you were saying. Um, people, Younger people than us are not preparing themselves in any way, shape, or form for their future. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know this jeff is this a negative issue about millennials or could it be their parents never prepared them for adulthood well yeah i, I think that that's maybe an element maybe it's what he's talking about with the you know with the guilt that's out there gee i i feel um i feel bad about this jeff will the millennials expect their children to help them also Okay, you've got that question as well. Jeff, I'd also like to know how many are also receiving some kind of government assistance. Uh, yeah, just don't know. Jeff, millennial financial supporters seems like people are rewarding bad behavior. My wife and I have two millennials, and they both make more than us. I need to give them both a hug. Yeah, that's that's what you, you should call up your kids this afternoon or this evening and say, hey, I was listening to this guy on the radio, and he was saying that like 65% of 
millennials, 27 to 42, they're, they're, they're getting regularly supported by their, their parents, and 35% are having, like, their, their parents are paying some of their monthly bills. Hey, kids, thanks so much for allowing me to um, do that. Jeff, my parents will help me here and there, but for the most part, I can pay my bills. I have a few friends who rely on their parents and get a lot of help. One pays their car insurance. Another pays their prescription for their insulin. Uh, insulin. Another one gets their cell phone paid. They all work. We're all in our 30s. Uh, you know, I, I just, I guess I'm trying to imagine. Okay, so, you know, 30 years old. I'm, I'm married. I'm working. My wife was working. Um, I, I'm just trying to imagine calling my, my parents and saying, hey, um, that, that monthly car insurance bill is due, Dad. You know, can, can you drop the check in the mail? Um, let's talk to Jose in Wauwatosa. Jose, you're in WTMJ. Yeah, Jeff, thanks for taking my call. We love the yes, show. Sir. Thank I'd you. Like, I'd like to say for you, with all due respect, man, get real. It's hard out there. I'm in my 40s, okay? My parents are in their late 60s, early 70s, and they got boatloads of money. And secondly, you, you cite this poll. How many people are in the poll? Maybe 500, 1,000? Are they now, supposed the, to represent the whole country? Please well, no, the this. one... No, well, the one, well, the one, the poll is that I'm looking at is like 2,500. But again, it, it's a talking point. But wait a second. So do you think... I mean, here's the reality, Jose. For a, a lot of people in their 60s, they don't necessarily have boatloads of, of money. But do you think it's fair for somebody who's 38 to be expecting their parents to pay their, their car insurance bills or their mortgage premium or their utility bills? Yes. I mean, at the age of 30, you think yes, it's fair? Yes, of course. Oh, 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 okay, got to hit the dump button there, Isaac. Okay, got it. All right, can't. Got it. Okay, can't use that word on the radio. Uh, <laughs> um, can't use that. But I mean, look here. I, I guess here. Here's the the bottom line of this. I understand people are working hard, and I understand times are are tough. Times have always though though been tough. And at some point in time, now again, I understand it's one thing if you are fortunate enough to have parents who are rolling in dough and things like that. But let's look at what the reality is. I mean, if you look at where the vast majority of people are, they don't have anywhere near, by the time pe- most people, and there are exceptions, I get it, but many, many people, by the time they hit the 50s and their 60s, they don't have anywhere near enough money themselves saved for for retire for retirement. I mean that's just that is just the reality of, you know, what's what's going on here. So they don't have enough money saved themselves and if you've got the 40-year-old kid who expects that mom and dad are going to pay their insurance premiums or going to again, you'll be floating them money on a regular basis. I I think that's that's a problem and I think that the kids who expect mom and dad to be taking away from their retirement income to pay their living expenses. Yeah, I think that's the problem. And maybe what they need to do, that would be the millennials, is they need to adjust their their lifestyle. And, and maybe that means, hey, I, I'm not going to go on as many vacations or, or whatever. Or, or maybe I'm going to look at this. And again, as I said, I always understand when you've got a situation where, You've got an, that emergency that comes up. Mom and dad, it's an emergency situation. This 
has, has happened and, and I need a little bit of help. And if mom and dad are in the position to do it, you would expect them to do it. But that's not what this is. This is on a regular basis. And at some point in time, at some point in time, do you become a moocher? And I guess that's what the issue is. And these numbers are, are staggering. I just, and it's kind of mind blowing to me. And my guess is, Baby boomers, it was a lot smaller percentage. And, and maybe this is just that entitlement. Oh, if mom and dad have it, I should be able to constantly get it. I don't think so. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I am so very glad to have you spending your Monday afternoon with me. WTMJ breaking news time is 1.30 p.m. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I think we discussed this maybe a month or, or two ago, and it's becoming more and more of a trend. Big story in the Washington Post today. Retailers try to curb theft while not angering shoppers. And and what this is talking about is the number of, of what they call it's shoplifting, but in the in the business term, it's shrinkage. In other words, you know, X percentage of, of goods gets stolen, and so the amount of money that you can generate, you know, shrinks. So what happens with shoplifting, of course, is at, at some point in time, all the rest of us, those of us who aren't stealing stuff from stores, we end up paying for it because what happens is, you know, the, the retailer needs to make a certain amount of money, and if people steal stuff, what they have to do is they have to, Increase costs, one increase prices. One of the things, and they if they look at the the average shrinkage, they estimate that about thirty seven percent of of theft is external theft. So this would be you know shoplifting things of the like, and shoplifting can be just the lone person that's going in and stealing stuff, and some of the more organized theft things where you see the pictures of a bunch of people like bum rush the store and grab all sorts of stuff and and head out. Well, one of the ways that retailers are dealing with shoplifting, shrinkage, whatever you want to call it nowadays, is they're locking more and more stuff up to the point that stuff that never used to, you know, get locked up is now having to be locked up. Maybe you've gone into a, a pharmacy or something and you've wanted to grab razor blades. Well, okay, you can't get the razor blades. The, the, you want to buy razor blades, you, you've got to, you know, find somebody to open the case to get the razor blades. Same thing is true with a lot of, um, quote-unquote, beauty products. Story I'm looking at, the, the shoplifting, because... The, the pet industry is, is a huge market nowadays. You know, more and more people got pets during COVID and stuff. And those of us who love our pets, you know, nothing's too good for them. So um, more and more pet stores are starting to lock up items like uh, shaving shears for things like that. Um, it, it's just, you know, you, so you go into the pet store, you used to be able to grab something off the shelf. You can't do it. The problem now, though, is the more power tools, you know, you go to, you go to Lowe's, you go to Home Depot, you know, chances are the power tools are all going to be locked up. But the problem is the more and more you do this, 
the more and more it frustrates the individuals, that more and more it, how it becomes increasingly difficult for shoppers because you don't want to go into the store and you don't want to say, okay, I just I want to be able to grab the razor blades. I want to be able to grab the beauty products. I want to be able to grab the, the AAA batteries. But they're all now under lock and key. So now I have to go track down somebody to come and open this this up because you know, people are, are stealing stuff. And especially in a day and age when the retailers are having trouble finding people, good luck, good luck with that. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Here is my question. Are you noticing more and more stuff in the stores under lock and key? And is that making you more reluctant to shop at those stores? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a minute. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. More and more stuff. If you go into the stores, it, it, it's under lock and key, and it's because of, of shoplifting. And the big question is, how are we as consumers responding to that? Um, Jeff, Home Depot is the closest store to me for Milwaukee Tools, so I won't stop going there to buy them. I spent 20 minutes, however, just trying to find a key to unlock what I wanted. Super inconvenient for honest buyers. Jeff, CVS has Irish Spring Soap under lock and key for crying out loud. Where does it end? Irish Spring Soap. Um, Jeff, I'm 54 years old. I found myself increasingly buying most things other than groceries online. With our busy work schedules, if I want to go to Target on Monday, I usually don't want to buy Friday. I still haven't gone, so I just buy it online and have it the next day and don't waste any gas or time. I don't have like having to deal with the frustrations that you're talking about with things being locked up when I want them. Jeff, I was at Metro Market Thanksgiving Day to buy two tomahawk steaks at 60 bucks each. The butcher gave me the receipt. I had to go pay for them first and bring then bring the receipt back to the butcher before I got the steaks. Then I went to Sendex and Mequon to get lobster tails for my lobster mac and cheese. I had to go pay for those first, and then the butcher brought them back to the counter. I was thoroughly annoyed. Jeff, I'm not standing around in a short staff store waiting for a case to be opened. It's making me order from Amazon more than ever. Jeff, I'm not making this up. At the craft store I patronized, they had crochet needles under a lock and key as well. I think it's pretty ridiculous when something that's $6 has to be, you know, locked up. Jeff, for me, the trend of items and locking up items in stores just makes shopping on Amazon more and more appealing for those items and more um yeah i I mean i think you know i I guess that's kind of how i feel and i know we've talked about this before and and i i i'm a buyer i'm not a shopper yeah i'm kind of like okay if i see something i want i just want to get it in the easiest way possible i'm not one of those people that likes to wander around through stores you know looking at stuff and things like that i know what my sizes are boom i'm going to get it that's why i there's so many reasons why I'm fortunate to be married to who I am, but she likes to shop, and you know she doesn't mind going to the grocery store and stuff like that. That's that's just not that's just not for me. But you know if I've got to go into 
like a pharmacy and I want to go buy some razor blades and I want to go to buy some Irish Spring soap and I want to buy some shaving cream and things like that, the last thing I want to do is say, okay, here, I'm going to wait around while I try to find somebody who can unlock it so I can get a couple cans of Edge or whatever, which is actually the way I have been responding. It's one of the reasons why I do order more and more of those sundries on online. Just the thing that, hey, you know, you, you can order uh, six cans of Edge shaving cream and they can deliver it uh, in a day or two, and then you'll have a six-month supply or whatever. The price is going to be competitive. It might even be better. If you're an Amazon Prime member, you're going to, you know, get the delivery for free, and you're not going to have to worry about trying to find somebody to open a case. Gianni in Montello. Gianni, you're on WTMJ. Yes, uh, good afternoon, Jeff. Hey, uh, up in my neck of the woods now, I have not encountered this this issue, but it would appear it would appear that the store is only looking out uh, and well, they should for their bottom line. And if they do not do that, then the the loss is going to be passed on to mm-hmm. the legitimate consumer. So uh, I take their hat my hat off to them, and I have no problem um, should that be an issue with, where I the stores I frequent here. Well, Johnny, I mean, thanks for calling. I, I appreciate. Look, I under. I know. I appreciate. I, I look. I understand what you're saying, and I, I understand why the stores are doing it. I, I get that that the stores are responding to the criminals that are out there, and I guess this leads to kind of one of the larger points that I, I want to make here. Um, when did we get to this point? And again, it makes sense what the stores are doing, but that is a tremendous inconvenience to the 98% of us who it would never occur to steal from the stores. So now as the result of the stores doing this, now, I, you know, if, if you're not upset about that, you don't mind waiting and trying to track somebody down, that's good. But I, I think a lot of us who do have options, like the options are things like ordering through Amazon or whatever, a lot of us sit there and say, well, I, I'm not going to, for for small purchases, and I I mean I understand. Look, they they've always had stuff that was easily stealable. I mean I remember when like the, the, the video game consoles were big; those were always under lock and key, and you'd have to you'd grab the card and you'd go up and they'd get them. I I understand that. I understand some of the small electronics products that were always subject to theft. I get it, but now it's more and more stuff. I mean, what 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 our texture saying? Like uh, Irish Spring soap is is locked up. Somebody's saying they were at one store in the Tide. The, the laundry detergent and stuff was locked up. At some point in time, you end up alienating the customers who simply say, "We're not going to go through all this." Um, and I understand why they do it. Maybe the question that we should be asking, and this is the larger point, is how did we let ourselves get to the point? where we were going to be held hostage by the thieves and by the shoplifters and by the people like that. Because that's, at the end of the day, this is the retailer's response to the thefts, right? So when did theft become normalized? And maybe, just maybe, if we treated the, the shoplifters, if we treated the people who were stealing from the stores, if we treated it as, as a bigger deal than we treat it, well, just maybe, maybe it would decrease a little bit. 855-616-1620, Nathan and Merrill. Nathan, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing today? I am well, thank you. What do you think about all this? Um, coming from, a, I worked at a big box store. I won't mention the name. And I understand the frustration with having to find somebody, especially with the 
staffing shortages now. But I also taking it from a different point of view when you're trying to help a customer and you know you had five of these things supposedly on the shelf and you can't find them and they get upset. I can see where the frustration comes in on both ends. Yeah. And and at the end, and at the end of the day, Nathan, it's all because at the end of the day, it's all because of the thieves, right? I mean, that that's why they have exactly. to respond because people are stealing the stuff, sure. Exactly. And unfortunately, where I was at, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff you could do. You could literally watch somebody put it in their pocket and walk out the door and you're not allowed to touch them. Right. Right. Yeah, Nathan, thanks for calling. I mean, that, that's the, I mean, that's, no, you're, you're right. I mean, that's the, that's the other thing. That's the day and age that we live in now where I, I'm not, you know, where store security is so, you know, hampered. I mean, store security is, is total. Okay. If people are running out of the stores. We don't want you to get into a confrontation. We want you to, you know, try to observe and we want you to try to identify and then we'll call the police. Oh, oh good luck with that. So, I mean, good, good luck with the, then expecting the police to get involved and then expecting the police to catch somebody and then expecting the DA's office to prosecute somebody for shoplifting and then expecting the courts to hold them accountable. And the bottom line of all this is the consumers pay number one and more number two the stores pay because people are inconvenienced and they have they have options i mean you know i i can drive to the store if i need double a and triple a batteries and i can try to track somebody down who's going to open up the case and let me get my triple a and double a batteries or i can just with three keystrokes i can order it on amazon and two days later i've got the batteries that are here but if it's it all comes down to the fact that we have these criminals that are out there and they are requiring and they are forcing all these different things. Now, I don't have a great answer for the stores. I will just tell you, though, from the perspective of me as a consumer, the more stuff that gets locked up, especially the, the smaller items, the, the less do I want to go through a drugstore saying, all right, I want I want the laundry soap. And here, I want laundry soap or I want bath soap or I want, well, one of our texters, Jeff, we stopped at a Walgreens in Tucson all the higher-end hair products were in a locked cabinet. Try to find somebody with a key, then have them walk you to the cashier. Sad times. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing, right? After you after you get it, they end up walking you to the cashier because they don't want you to, you know, rip people off. Jeff, this is a sign of today, and it's one of the reasons why I no longer teach. For 30 years, the schools consistently made new rules based on one or two students that caused issues rather than dealing with the problem students, and the stores are doing the same thing here. Bottom line of all this is if, you, if you've noticed more stuff being locked up, it's because more stuff is being locked up. And if you're finding it to be more and more inconvenient, it's because it is more and more inconvenient. And at the end of the day, the reason they're doing that, understand why the stores are doing it, but at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, again, criminals out of control and everybody else pays. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. Hey, let me call. I, over the weekend, I posted a couple things on on Twitter, and you can follow me. It's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. Uh, I, I just I, I I I can't talk about this stuff every day and take phone calls on it, but it's just it continues to be so incredibly frustrating. Another day, another person dead because of crazy reckless driving. I, I've got pictures of this, if, if you've seen it. Um, Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. 
10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, not Sunday night, 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, 60th and Capitol, which is, I mean, 60th Street is a pretty big, you know, north-south street, and Capitol Drive, even though it's is very dangerous at some point in time. It's still one of the major east-west thoroughfares. Lots of people on Capitol Drive. This is 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning when people are going to church, coming from church, going out to breakfast, whatever. You've got two guys who are racing, is what it sounds like, on, on 60th Street. You know, they're, they're racing on 60th Street, going, I think, southbound. Racing. They're racing. And what happens is there's a, a car that's coming up 60th Street, getting ready to make a left turn on the Capitol or something like that. So these cars that are racing south, one of the cars, uh, in an effort to avoid hitting the the car that's getting ready to make the left turn, because these cars are driving like bats out or you know what, loses control of the car and smashes into a a vacant home on like 60th and, and Melvina, which is, again, right by Capitol. The pictures of this are just incredible. I mean, the car... It must have been going at a very, very high rate of speed when it slammed into the home. Uh, lots of damage to the house. The house is, is vacant. And the 23-year-old guy who's driving the car, he's dead. He, he's just, he's dead. And I guess my comment, and I don't mean to be insensitive about this, was, um, you know, I guess at least the only good news about this is that the guy who ended up dead, the driver, at least he didn't take out a pedestrian or an innocent driver with him. But still, what a foolish, stupid thing to do. What a senseless way to die. The guy he was racing with in the other car, they, they've caught them, and he's now in, in custody and stuff. But it's it's just, the, the, this is another one where the driver of the car that was speeding, he, he ends up dead. But it could have just as easily been you or me or anybody else that was in that area. Another day, another one of these just senseless deaths. It seems like there's one or two or three or four every week. And nobody has any ideas to stop them. How incredibly frustrating could that be? And if you want to see the pictures, it's just it's it's just an unbelievable story. Another day, another person dead because of irresponsible, reckless driving. When we come back after the top of the hour news, Joe Biden, gas stoves and Ralphie's mom stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Well, I, I want to give you an update on something I said the other day because I've had a number of listeners who have, have followed my advice and um, have, have found that advice to be somewhat frustrating. So this is one of these examples where I'm right, but you're dealing with the government, so you need to know things. There was a story a couple weeks ago about how they were TSA pre-check. If you fly domestically, TSA pre-check is a way of, of pre-screening. You, you get yourself, you get a card, you pay 75 or 80 or 85 bucks. I'm not sure what it is now. And that lets you, you get a pre-check number. And what that means is you get to, you get to bypass the regular line. You get to go into the TSA pre-check line. And if you've flown domestically, you see it. There's the one line, there's the other line. And there's almost always a lot fewer people in the TSA pre-check line. The other that's nice thing that's very nice about the TSA pre-check thing is 
you you don't have to take your shoes off you don't have to take your belt off you don't have to you know open up take your computer out and prove that it's a computer and stuff it makes the process of getting through the TSA lines simpler and that's that's worth it to me the advice i gave um, a couple weeks ago though was that if TSA pre-check is great but if there's ever a chance that you think in the next five years that you are going to be fly, that you're going to be going overseas, and you're going to be flying overseas or flying out of the country, my response is don't go the TSA pre-check route. Spend the extra fifteen bucks and get a global entry card. That's that's what what I have. We uh, Fran and I got them when we started like doing our our trips with Fox Fox Travel because global entry, it's. It gives you all the same privileges as, T- as TSA pre-check. So whenever you fly domestically, you, you get to get in the TSA pre-check line. But for an extra 15 bucks, and again, they, they might have reduced the price of TSA pre-check, but back when I got it, it was, I think, 85 Global entry is 100 bucks. For $100, you can bypass some of the long customs lines. Like if you're uh, coming into the country, you know, a lot of times you come into Chicago. If you have ever been through Chicago Customs, you know, you know you can be stuck in that line for a couple hours. That is not unusual. But if you've got the global entry card, you get to go into a separate line, and it makes it a lot easier. It also um, makes it, it a lot easier to clear customs at different places. So I, my only point was if, if, you, if there's ever a chance that you think in the next couple years – that you might be traveling overseas. My advice was spend the extra 15 bucks, get the global entry card because it'll make your, your life easier and you get all the advantages of the TSA pre-check. Now to get the global entry card, you, you fill out this application online, you, you transmit your money, I think you can do it with credit cards. And then the thing is that you need a, an in-person interview. And they do the, in, at least at the time in Milwaukee, they, they did the in-person interviews at the custom office on, customs office on Leighton and Howell. That's or right around there. That's where I remember going. So when I got mine a few years back, it was, I, I think, I, I think the whole process only took a couple weeks. I mean, from beginning to end, I was able to schedule the in-person appointment. Then I got it. I was just surprised at how easy this was. So I highly recommend the global entry. Again, if you're, if you're traveling overseas. So I have a um, have a, one of our listeners, Janet, in Waterford. Good morning, Jeff. Sending this e- email as a follow-up to your advice on the January 25th show. The topic you advised on was global entry, which is true. I mean, I just it's a great deal. As a follow-up, we wanted to see you the, to see you to see the time frames that are now involved. All four of us are traveling to Italy in September. Right after hearing your show, we took your advice. We applied and paid the fee. We received conditional approval within days. All right, everything's sounding great now. However, there are no appointments available in Milwaukee or surrounding states. Almost comical, except for the $100 fee that you paid gets you nothing until you have your interview. But there's no appointments available in Milwaukee. Assume all interviewing personnel have been assigned to the border. Appreciate the show. So I'm sitting there, and I'm feeling a little bit guilty because global entry really is the way to go. There, there's no question about it. But, yeah, you, you send your money in, and then you got to schedule an interview. I do know people who have have driven down to Chicago, I mean, gone to O'Hare and, and gotten their interviews there, but it sounds like these not, might not even be available. So I guess my, my comment would be it's still a really, really good deal, but 
for whatever reason, there doesn't sound like they're doing interviews at the moment, and that can create a problem. So my advice is good, but if you're applying for global entry, just be prepared to wait a little bit because they are from the government and they are here to help you. When we come back, all right, I want to talk about gas stoves. There is an update on the story, and Joe Biden, will he, won't he, should he, shouldn't he? Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Jeff, I have traveled internationally twice in the last two months, so I got mine. It was easier and easier each time. Just this weekend, I came back into the country, didn't even have to put my passport in the reader. All I had to do is smile at the camera. It took a picture, and in 30 seconds, it said, hello. Um, My name is Walter, and I was in. They hand you a yellow plastic card, um, and then you walk right through. Yeah, it's it's just great. Jeff, Global Entry is great if it works. Two weeks ago, we attempted to use it in Miami as we returned from Antarctica. Computers down, so we ended up in the line. Jeff, your friend Rose Gray had a workaround for that situation. It involved asking for an interview at the gate. Um, Yeah, I I don't – again, I did the interview – uh, a couple years ago at the customs offices and stuff. But uh, understanding that there, if you are traveling overseas, I continue to encourage you to think about it. If you can get it, it's it will make your life a lot easier. And at the end of the day, that's what we're all about, trying to make life easy. Okay, here is the numbers. Uh, Joe Biden has his you know, State uh, of the Union address that is coming up. Here are the latest numbers. Now, and again, you can take polls for what you want. This is a poll released today, so it's hot off the presses, by the Associated Press um, NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. They survey Democrats. So this is not a survey of the general population. I've got one of those coming up in just a minute. But they're asking Democrats, do you want to see Joe Biden run for a second term? All right, 37% of Democrats say they want Biden to run for re-election. That's a significant drop since just before the midterm elections when 52% of Democrats supported Joe Biden for a second term. Now, they're, they're trying to anticipate, could this be because of the scandal over classified documents? Could it be because Joe's 80 years old, would be 82 if he were reelected, um, the war in Ukraine, whatever. But 37% of Democrats say they want him to run again. Another poll, Washington Post ABC News poll released last week, uh, essentially say that, well, here, here's the number. Overall, 62% of voters, this is not just Democrats, 62% say Biden has, Biden has accomplished not much, little or nothing since he took office um, two years ago. When, same time when they asked about Obama, only 52% said that number. So um, only 7% of voters said they would feel enthusiastic if Biden was elected. 29% said they would be satisfied but not excited. So that's like 36% saying I would either be happy or eh, it'll be okay. Uh, 32% said they'd be dissatisfied. Another 30% said that they would be outright angry. So I think one of the fair takeaways from this is that even among Democrats, even among Democrats, there's not a lot of enthusiasm for Joe Biden 
running for a second term. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, let's tee this up. Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, lots. We we have people, trust me, from all across the political spectrum that, that look at this. Do you believe you want to see Biden run again? And I guess I'd be particularly interested in hearing from people who voted for him the last time. And I understand it was a different dynamic. You know, you were running against Trump and Trump was very, very polarizing. But would you like to see Joe Biden run for a second term? Not asking, would you like to see a Democrat win? It's do you want to see Joe Biden be the Democrat standard bearer? Or someone else. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I will tell you, I'm I'm not surprised by these numbers at all. And at the risk of being again accused of being ageist and stuff, I think I, I think and I'd say this for Trump too, I, at some point in time, I, I mean when you get somebody that's in their upper seventies Trump or would be eighty two Joe Biden yeah, isn't it time to retire? And if I were a Democrat considering running for voting for somebody, I'd want a different choice as opposed to simply saying, oh, Joe Biden's the president, so I'm going to support him again. I would want a different choice. 855-616-1620. All right. Should Biden run again? And the number of Democrats are saying that. 37%, only 37% want him to run for re-election. I'm not surprised by that. I understand it, and I think it should be a cautionary tale. What do you think? We discuss in a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Okay, th- this, isn't, this isn't me saying this. There, there's a new poll out of Democrats, um, and this is an Associated Press poll. 37% want him to run for Biden to run for re-election. And um, and this isn't a question. Do you think he's doing a good job or not? Do you think he's uh, do you regret your vote? It's just like 37 percent are saying they they don't only 37 percent are saying they want him to run for election. In other words, people are saying they want a different choice. I I believe these numbers. Um, let's see. Jeff, Joe Biden doesn't have a chance. Um, I think they need fresh ideas and faces in the White House. Jeff, I voted for Joe Biden. I don't want him to run again. I would like somebody younger, but don't have a candidate yet looking for a moderate candidate's willing to work uh, for all people, not a finger pointer. So tired of that on both sides um jeff for the sake of the usa i think we need to get somebody younger and more with it please no trump no biden in 2024 jeff i voted for biden i don't want him to run again he's just too old i want a different choice jeff no biden shouldn't run bow out now so a younger person can be promoted and have time to build a campaign jeff i want to see younger fresh candidates on both sides um all right well i mean i think that that's i think that's fair now the the problem is uh uh vice president harris has had a tough time developing i you know i'm not sure that she would be the the logical replacement for joe biden and um i i think she's got popularity issues as well so if biden were to announce that he's not going to run again i guess the question becomes does that make her the 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 natural successor and is that the good thing if you're a democrat rhonda rhonda you're on wtmj good afternoon okay 
Um, this is my first time calling. I listen to you guys all the time. Um, and I actually uh, don't even want to admit it, but I voted for Biden only because uh, we could not, as a country, handle another four years of DT. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I really wish that we could get away with the two-party system. It's old. It's antiquated. Um, and so are the candidates that we've been having. Uh, I would love to see somebody get in there who isn't an old white man. Uh, right, right. Let's, let's get some no, fresh, r- let's get some fresh stuff. Yeah, Rhonda, thank, thanks for calling and thanks for listening and, and thanks for for joining us. I always love the first time callers. I I understand exactly what you're you're talking about, and I think a lot of people are are frustrated with precisely what it is that you're the, the same thing it's like okay we we want sort of different choices and i mean heck i i always kind of joke around about this but it's like okay can't we find some young whippersnappers can't we find somebody in their 60s for for whatever who, who who's going to run um but i think it's an issue and Rhonda, thanks again for joining us we appreciate it 855-616-1620 charlie charlie you're on wtmj good afternoon good afternoon jeff I hope and pray that Joe Biden is the nominee and runs again, because being a staunch conservative, he is the most easily defeatable candidate I can think of. From his track record on the economy, his age, his befuddlement, there is nothing that is electable about Joe Biden. So I hope he runs again. Thank you. Thank you for the call, Charlie. Well, I think there's... Look, I think... I think Joe Biden was actually a, a creation of circumstance. And I, I've made this argument before. I think that there are a lot of people, I don't know that there were too many Democrats who were excited about voting for Joe Biden, but but he won, and, and he did win the election. He, he won because you had a lot of people who had just had enough of, of Donald Trump. And that, that's just, that is just the reality. You had suburban women. You know, I don't know where our first caller, Rhonda, lives from, but, you know, who might have otherwise leaned conservative, but who just were done with Trump or for whatever reasons. So, I mean, Joe Biden, in some respects, was an accident of history. It it was who he ended up running against, as opposed to, gee, we're really, really enthusiastic that that he's going going to run. And, you know, you you can argue about his accomplishments or his lack of accomplishments. I mean, that's all well well and good as well. But I got to imagine that there's lots of Democrats who without, again, arguing, is he a great president, is he an average president, is he a lousy president, whatever, sit there and recognize the guy's 80 years old. And at some point in time, one of our texters is saying Nancy Pelosi stepped down. At some point in time, you've you got to know when it's time to you know move on. And I think that this poll, I believe these numbers, 37%, only 37% want him to run again. That's not saying that they want to see a Republican you know win the White House. It's they recognize that Biden would be a flawed candidate. They want choices. And I do think it says something. Look, and I understand, and you can say this about Republicans, too, so I don't mean this as indictment of Biden. But what does it say about people that, you know, you're the age of 80, and you can't, and you would be 82, and you can't step off the stage? Is it this massive ego that you think that you're the only person out there that can do the job? I mean, at some point in time, you have to 
move on. And I think Joe Biden can look back at his accomplishments and say, you know, he pretty much, he was the President of the United States, Vice President, he was a long-serving senator, he did all this great stuff. You could, you know, be proud of, of your record as a public servant and then still recognize it's time to move on. I think these polls are accurate. I think it is a cautionary note, and I think there needs to be some people, if you're a Democrat, you want to see Democrats get reelected, reelect and hold the White House in um, 2024, there's got to be somebody whispering in his ear saying, Joe, Maybe now is the time to figure out what you're going to do for the next stage of your life. Because, look, these poll numbers are what these poll numbers are. Your approval ratings have been underwater since you essentially started. You know, unless you're going to run against Trump again, and I don't believe that's going to be the case, you're probably not going to win. So why put yourself through that? Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Um, again, if you follow me on Twitter, uh, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. A couple different postings over the course of the weekend. One is a, um, well, they're both actually sad stories. First of all, uh, Melinda Dillon, who is probably best known playing Ralphie's mom in A Christmas Story. That, that's who Melinda Dillon was. But she was actually so much more than that. She was... Um, uh, she was in Close Encounters of a Third Kind, you know, one of the big Steven Spielberg movies. Um, she was in Absence of Malice, which is one of my favorite movies with Paul Newman and uh, Sally Field. And it's it's actually one of the, the great exposés of, of media bias and media excess. And um, she was in Slapshot, which is another Paul Newman movie. Um, and But she had a wide variety of careers. She, she started out as a Broadway actress. She played, um, she, she played the ingenue in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, didn't carry that over to the, uh, the movie that they made of it. But anyway, she had a wide, varied career. And, and she passed away at the age of um, 83. Uh, apparently, the, the family had kept the news quiet. She passed away on January 9th. And so they just they announced that she had over the weekend that she had died. But um, it's, it's just another one of these. You, you have all these actors and actresses who, you know, just created these kind of iconic roles. And they're, they're just for, forever. I mean, when. When you think of Melinda Dillon, she's always going to be the image of Ralphie's mom. That that that's going to be it. And she's created this kind of iconic character, almost by happenstance and stuff. And and you are, it, she's just timeless in that respect. So um, very sad news. But Melinda Dillon passed away at the age of eighty three. So many classic um, roles. The the other story that I wanted to highlight, in case you missed it over the weekend, the Wauwatosa police have released the footage from that that wreck that occurred in uh, Wauwatosa right by by just south of Mayfair Shopping Center a, a few weeks ago this was one where the 64-year-old woman who worked for the Milwaukee Department of Public Works she she filled potholes this is the one where if you remember she's heading um, southbound on on Mayfair Road and apparently suffers, I mean, they haven't announced the cause of death, but she apparently suffers some sort of medical incident. And you can see that the film of the car, just the, the truck, just driving like 60 miles an hour at a high rate of speed going southbound on Mayfair Road. And if you can picture like Mayfair and Wisconsin, Mayfair Road and Wisconsin Avenue, sort of by the zoo and kind of right by where you get on the freeway on-ramp there and stuff. The car slams into a bunch of cars. The truck slams into a bunch of cars that are parked at the light and just 
burst of, of flame. And now the Wauwatosa police have, have released the, the video of this, and all the news stations had it. You might have seen it over the weekend, but if you haven't, I've got a link to the story. Again, it's at Jeff Wagner 620, and you watch this video, and you can just see you can see that the car explode. And, uh, of course, there were, you know, three people that were killed in this crash and just in, in, in this, it's a small world category, a very close friend of a friend's and mine, a close friend of hers, her daughter um, was a close friend of one of the women, the 40 year old woman from Cedarburg who was killed in the crash. And it's kind of a, you know, five degrees of separation thing, but it's just, it, it's a horrible, horrible sort of story. And I guess my take on this, if you haven't seen it, it, it just, you go, wow, it, it's almost a miracle that there weren't more people who were killed in this. And I, I guess my takeaway of it was that stories like this should remind all of us that life is short. And again, it's another one of these examples of talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, here you have people that are just stopped at a, a stoplight on Mayfair Road and you know Hob and and Wisconsin Avenue you're waiting for the light to change and all of a sudden some woman has a medical emergency driving a truck and plows into these cars at a high rate of speed and then it's just absolutely terrible so it, it again makes you appreciate how short life is here's one of my other little drops for the day um Anthony Fauci who of course Retired. I'm going to actually. I'll send out a tweet on this where you see the story. Um, Anthony Fauci, who retired from the government finally, who's a very, very controversial figure. And I've always been, I, I've been kind of agnostic on on Dr. Fauci. I don't think he was the hero that that some people painted him to be. I think he kind of fell in love with the sound of his own voice and being on camera. But I, I don't think he was the villain either. I, I think he. I think Fauci hurt himself by going on TV all the time and conflicting statements. And I understand science changes, but it doesn't change every two days. And I think Fauci did himself and the war on COVID a a disservice by, again, not saying no to, like, any sort of TV interview. Anyhow, uh, Dr. Fauci is now in the private sector. Apparently, he has signed up with the leading motivational speakers agency. You know, so he, he's going to go give speeches and stuff. He is a motivational and healthcare keynote speaker. All right, that that's fine. Price tag: If you want Anthony Fauci to come speak to your group, here's the tag. The price tag it ranges. It starts at fifty thousand dollars and goes up to one hundred thousand dollars. So. You know, Anthony Fauci, um, he's decided he's going to cash in as well. So you can decide whether or not, you know, if you've got, you're looking for somebody to come out and speak to your Kiwanis Club uh, next Tuesday night or something, Anthony Fauci might be available. All you got to do is have a hundred grand at the ready. When we come back, I want to talk about gas stoves. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Yeah, I just sent out a note. Uh, for a mere $100,000, Dr. Anthony Fauci will speak to your group. I assume first-class airfare is not included. Let the bidding begin. Oh, you, you knew Dr. Fauci was not going to go quietly into the good night. Okay, there's been a, a series of interesting stories out there. We uh, uh, Again, a few weeks ago, we talked about th- this effort that got outed 
by the the guy from uh, Joe Biden's Consumer Product Safety Commission to essentially, I mean, he threatened essentially outlawing gas stoves. And he gives an interview. His name is Richard Trumpcomb. He gives this interview and he says, hey, everything is on the table, including, you know, we could ban the manufacture of these things. And, and what this really is, it's, it's, an, it's an eco thing. You've got a lot of the eco-warriors who don't like the fact that we use stuff that relies on natural gas. So the argument is, hey, let's get the Consumer Product Safety Commission involved because, you know, maybe we're in a situation where we can argue that these gas stoves are unsafe because that they have some emissions that, that are there. Now, gas stoves have been around forever, and you don't hear too many reports of too many people dying from exposures to gas stoves. But the easy way to handle any problem you have is just simply to put in some ventilation. But again, that doesn't solve the problem of the people who hate the natural gas and, and don't want people you know using that. So um, Consumer Product Safety Commission floats this idea. It goes over like a, a lead balloon. All right. So then they, they back up. Oh, no, no, no. We we weren't talking about, you know, banning the manufacturer. We weren't talking about saying you couldn't use your gas stove. Well, yes, nuts, nuts. That's exactly what they were. They were talking about that. They were saying we're not going to let anything new be manufactured. There's already a number of communities across the country that won't allow gas to be put into new construction. And it, it's not about safety. That's just a red herring. It's about, well, you know, we don't want we don't like natural gas, so we want to electrify everything without answering the question about how are you going to produce the, the power to generate the electricity. So anyhow, the, the Biden administration backs off. Oh, no, no, no. We're, we're not trying to use regulations to get rid of the gas stoves. Well, here's the, the latest. Um, late last week, what happened is the Energy Department decided to say, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to have another proposal. We're not going after it from a safety perspective, but what we're going to do is we are going to publish first-of-our-kind guidelines on energy consumption, which limits the amount of energy that various stoves can use. The proposal that they came out with effectively would identify, well, about 85% of the gas stoves that are on the market now. They, they wouldn't be able to meet these energy standards. And so effectively, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to, unless the manufacturers come up with all sorts of new and more expensive techniques, you wouldn't be able to continue to buy the, these gas stoves because they wouldn't meet the energy requirements. And so this is the latest thing. So interestingly, you have a number of people, including Ted Cruz and Joe Manchin, who's the Democrat from West Virginia. They have introduced what's called the Gas Stove Protection and Freedom Act, which would essentially prohibit the government from advancing regulations on existing or new gas stoves that would either ban their use or would otherwise substantially increase the average price of gas stoves in the United States. Okay, we only got a couple minutes. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Whether it's going at it from an energy perspective or a customer safety perspective, the government, I think, needs to get out of people's kitchen. I mean, get out of somebody's kitchen. And if you decide, for example, that you want your gas stove and you don't want to electrify and you are willing to pay whatever the cost is to operate your gas stove, I think you should be allowed to do it. If you are willing to take the risk that, gee, 
um, there, there might be certain types of, you know, small quantities of gas, which is released into my kitchen because I'm choosing to be one of the, what are the numbers here, about 40% of the people in this country who cook with gas stoves because for whatever reasons you like gas stoves, you like the heat or whatever, I think you should have the right to do that. Now, I think it's very, very fine for the government to come out and say, hey, just so you understand, just so you understand, you know, there's these studies out there that suggest that, you know, if you've got an unventilated kitchen and you're using one of these gas stoves and it doesn't matter the fact that, you know, you've been using that gas stove for 30 years and there's never been any problems, it could under certain circumstances lead to this or lead to that or could cause asthma or could exasperate an asthma condition or whatever, then the, the simple solution is, so if you're going to do that, you might, might want to consider you know, making sure there's ventilation, put in a fan hood or something like that. You do these things and you solve the problem. But of course, that doesn't stop what's really going on here. The idea is you've got these eco-warriors out there who don't like natural gas and they want to electrify everything. So they, they don't want you to have your gas furnaces, and they don't want you to have your gas fireplaces, and they don't want you to have your gas water heater, and they don't want you to have your gas stove. And so what's going to happen is, Let's try to use government regulations, whether it's under the guise of product safety or whether it's energy consumption. Let's pass energy rules with regard to, you know, energy output. I mean, seriously, has anybody ever been too concerned about, gee, I think my stove is using too much, you know, energy? But let's try to use these rulemaking processes, because we know we could never get anything like this through Congress. So let's try to use these agencies that we control, the big government agencies, and let's try to use that to impose these regulations, which effectively will make it impossible for the average person to replace their gas stove. Jeff, interestingly, the White House has gas stoves. I wonder if they'll change. Um, Jeff, I'm not a hater. I hate the way the government is trying to tell me what I need to do for my own good, whether I like it or not. It's my choice. I don't want them taking away my freedom of choice. Jeff, electric stoves take so long to boil water. I miss the flat top on electric stoves for cleaning, but using gas is so much more instant heat or instant off if it's uh, boiling over. Jeff, are gas grills next using propane? Well, I, I don't think there's anything that um, I think that that's I think that that's pretty clear that that's the situation that's there. Look, and the bottom line is, I think it's fine, like I say, for the government to say, hey, maybe you want to consider like a more energy efficient stove or maybe, you know, maybe you want to consider, you know, putting in some ventilation. But beyond that, stay the heck out of our kitchen. When we come back, let's find out what John and Sandy have on their minds for Wisconsin's afternoon news.